turn with me in your Bible, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7, and we're reading from verse 3. Does anyone have the pew Bible that they can shout out the number of the page, that is? 180 and 218, I heard two numbers then. 1828. 218. Oh, we got there. Never was anything so difficult. 1, chap- 1 Samuel chapter 7, and we're reading from verse 3. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He, na- he named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. We look forward to what the Lord has to reveal through our brother Dale. Thank you. My kids are being careful at the moment because they've seen the last of the Marvel movies and I haven't. And they're trying carefully when they talk about such things not to give it away. But um, we've read the end of the story that I'm about to tell you. Um, but some movies work like that. They kind of give you the end and now let's explain what's happened beforehand. So I think it'll still be okay. Last time I've shared on this, these chapters before when I was um, at Junie and so when I came to, when David gave me the chapters I thought, oh this is terrific. Um, but the points that came out for me this time round are completely different to the points that came out last time and as I tell you the story um, from these chapters then maybe the points that you go out the door with might be completely different from the points that I've seen. But the important thing is that we are impacted by 
what is recorded here in Israel's history because it's for our benefit that it's here in the scriptures. So let's um, ask for God's help. <clears throat> well, thanking you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for these stories that are so rich. And we are presenting ourselves before you now, Lord, that as we hear this story that you will minister very deeply and powerfully into our minds and into our hearts, giving us the perspective that we need today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Samuel begins with, as you heard last week, this lady named Hannah who was a very humble lady. She was in a very humble circumstance in that she was married to a man who had another wife and the rival wife could have children and she couldn't. And maybe that was bad enough, but whenever they would go to Shiloh to offer sacrifices, Penina would just remind Hannah, oh, no kids, eh? Come on, Johnny, come on. Lucy, whatever, they're probably not those English names. Um, But Elkanah was really helpful as a husband's often are, and he said, don't worry about it. I mean, you know, I should mean so much more to you than having children. Doesn't it mean ten times more to you that I love you? May not have meant as much to her as he thought it might, might have. But she was being humiliated and tormented, um, while this woman was lifting her head and, um, and gloating. And she got to Shiloh and she'd had enough and she was very upset and she cried out to the Lord. But she didn't, nothing came out of her mouth. It was all pouring out of her heart. And Eli, the priest, whose sight was beginning to fail him, it wasn't just his physical sight, but I think his spiritual sight wasn't the best either because he looked at her and he said stop your drinking put away your wine and she said please don't mistake me for a wicked woman I've been pouring out my heart to God and he said may the Lord hear your prayer and she had said to the Lord in her heart if you give me a son I will give him back to you and she heard Eli's words and she took those as a promise from God And I reckon on the way home, Panina could have done her worst and it wouldn't have hit the mark for Hannah because she knew that God had heard her and was going to give her what she'd asked for. And lo and behold, the next time um, she comes up, she has a little baby Samuel. She waits until he is weaned. He doesn't need his mum's milk anymore. And he presents her to... um, Presents him, thank you... I've already been corrected a few times in the 8.15, so I've been humbled enough that you can correct me again this morning as I get things wrong. Make sure you read the Bible for yourself, won't you? Anyway, just just realise, as I said it also, no, she she didn't come up until the boy was ready to be weaned, and she brings Samuel to Eli, and she reminds, she tells him the story of who Samuel is, and she leaves Samuel there, to serve God at God's house. And she prays 
And, um, you know, if it was me, I'd kind of be breaking down in tears at this point. And um, they'd need a crowbar to wedge me and <laughs> my uh, um, little boy away from each other. But um, for Hannah, it was a time of joy because she had come from this very low place to now God has lifted her up. And now Samuel gets this great privilege of serving in God's house. <clears throat> and she prays, and as she prays, she says, God is the one who lifts up the humble poor and he brings down the arrogant, powerful ones. He's the one who lifts up and he brings down. And this is what we see happening throughout the book of Samuel, in fact, throughout all human history. And at the end of history, we will see this pattern of what, like Jesus said, the first will be last and the last will be first. And so these scoundrel fellas um, of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, find themselves being brought down in this story and Samuel is being more and more raised up. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 4, we find that already the words of Samuel are going out throughout all of Israel because they recognise that here is someone who is hearing from God and we're listening to what he says. Now, the Philistines and the Israelites were not very friendly at this point in their history, as was often the case. And the Philistines were, had already taken some of the Israelites' towns away from them. And here is another occasion where they've drawn up battle lines against one another. And the Philistines and the Israelites engage in battle and 4,000 Israelites are killed. And Israel, the Israelite leaders do a wonderful thing. They recognise God's hand in this and they say, why? It's a wonderful thing when um, you come to a point of crisis and it causes you to look at your own heart before God. And um, that's not quite what happened, actually. <laughs> they said, why, God? And they didn't look at their heart. They went and grabbed the ark. They sent some people to Shiloh and they took the ark from God's house and they dragged it up into their camp. And as the Israelite soldiers saw the ark coming into their camp, they were very excited. And they raised this great shout. Uh, I was watching my kids play soccer yesterday and before the whistle went... The two opposing teams got in a huddle and I was just talking to someone as this was happening and then my attention was suddenly arrested by this great shout as the huddled team kind of let out this battle cry, so to speak. And I thought, oh, that's a bit scary. I reckon that could work if I was on the other team. But then the other team did the same thing and it evened things out. But the Israelites were letting out this great battle cry because they were excited and confident that God is right here in the midst of us and we cannot be defeated. You Philistines, you are in big trouble. So they engaged, so the Philistines heard this great shout and they said to each other, a God has come into the camp. They must have had some spies to go and check out what's happening. A God has come into the camp. Now you remember these Israelites have a history. They were in Egypt once and their God did some very bad things 
to the Egyptians. If you don't fight for your lives today, you could end up being slaves of the Israelites instead of them being slaves of us. And so they stirred themselves up in great fear and trembling. And guess what happened? Last time, 4,000 Israelites were killed. This time, 30,000 Israelites were killed. And the men were sent running back to their tents. What is going on here? Do you think it's possible for God's people to be absolutely confident of victory and blessing and to be wrong? Yes. It happened right there. Do you think it's possible today for God's people to be absolutely confident of victory and blessing in Jesus and to be wrong? I'm not asking, is it possible for Jesus to be less powerful than we think he is? The Philistines may have thought that God was less powerful than they thought he was, but that's not why they were defeated. Why were they defeated? There was a few things going on in Israel that might give us a clue. These fellas, these young men who were with the ark, Hophni and Phinehas, As we heard last week, they were scoundrels. And whenever people brought offerings to God's house, they would help themselves to the best parts. They would take the meat with the fat in it. They didn't want, no, don't burn that fat to God. We want that fat for ourselves. Thank you very much. And if someone took objection to that, then they would say, okay, you want a bit of this, do you? We're in a position of power and you'd better do what we say. So there was terrible abuse of power and greed happening amongst the top people of the Israelites. Not only that, but they were treating God's house like a brothel. They would sleep with the women that would come to offer sacrifices as well. And not only that, it wasn't just those who were in the leadership of Israel, but we find out later in the story that the Israelites are serving other gods, not just the God of Israel, but they were bowing down and worshipping idols, idols that cannot speak or act, idols that couldn't save. And so this is the state of Israel. And so this is what the people are like, and yet they think they can just drag the ark in amongst themselves and expect to have... Great victory. Is this the way God works? It's not the way God worked then and it's not the way God worked, works today. And so we have to be careful of being presumptuous before God. And we might think that our religion could save us while we just live our own life and do as we please. It's this interesting thing you may have seen on the internet here and there. And it's been thrown around um, the media a lot. Um, Israel Folau, a Christian former uh, rugby union star, who posted this on social media, and he's been in a lot of trouble for that. Lost his job, actually. A lot of people have lost their job for um, 
for daring to say things that, um, that people don't like to hear. But um, he's kind of used this, is he, as an evangelistic tool to try and get people to turn to Christ. But that's actually not what the scriptures he's quoting from were intended for in the first place. I want to um, stand with him in his right to free speech, but I'd also want to say that perhaps um, the way this is put is not seasoned with salt, as the scripture tells us when we're speaking to those who are not believers, and it's actually not understood in its proper context. I'm going to read to you the scriptures uh, that this little poster comes from. Uh, Galatians 5, uh, verse 19. This is Paul speaking not to unbelievers, but to Christians. People's desire, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, I'm reading from the contemporary English version. People's desires make them give in to immoral ways, filthy thoughts and shameful deeds. They worship idols, practice witchcraft, hate others and are hard to get along with. People become jealous, angry and selfish. They not only argue and cause trouble, but they are envious. They get drunk, carry on at wild parties and do other evil things as well. I told you before and I'm telling you again. No one who does these things will share in the blessings of God's kingdom. Who's he talking to? He's talking to people who presume the blessings of God because they have taken on the name of Jesus. And they know the scriptures and they're meeting with God's people. But he's saying to them, if these things apply to you, you can't assume God's blessing. Because you're calling yourself a Christian, but you're living like someone who is not. This is actually how I became a Christian in year 10. That someone said that. You call yourself a Christian, but this is how you're living. And um, by the mercy of God, I was convicted. And um, we'll get to that process a little bit later. Um, one of the other, the other scripture that this comes from a couple of scriptures, this post that Israel Folau put up, the other one is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, um, verse 9. Surely you know that the wicked will not possess God's kingdom. Don't fool yourselves. People who are immoral or who worship idols or are adulterers or homosexual perverts or who steal or are greedy or are drunkards or who slander others, or are thieves, none of these will possess God's kingdom. And this, again, is Paul speaking to Christians. So, it's possible for us to come to church and to sing these songs like we sang this morning. God is with us. He is on our side. God is able and for it actually not to apply to you because you are living in disobedience to God. So this is a very important challenge um, to God's people who are presuming upon his blessing without turning from sin. It doesn't stay there, though, actually. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, Let me just continue with the story. Forgive me if my... PowerPoint and my story don't quite line up. 
sometimes I get a bit excited and forget to press buttons. So they're absolutely crushed and defeated in battle and a Benjamite escapes and he runs into Shiloh and he starts to tell people what's happened. And this great wail starts to come, come out and Eli is at the gate sitting on a chair and he's listening and he's blind at this point so he's just kind of looking into the darkness of his own blindness and waiting for, for news of the battle. And he was anxious because they'd taken the ark and uh, he'd never been someone who was very strong at saying no to things that were wrong. And so the ark had just gone. And the Benjamite, um, Eli says to the Benjamite, what's going on? What's happened? And he says, your sons are dead. There's been a great slaughter amongst God's people. And the ark has been captured. Now the ark, um, I forgot, Sheldon said I should explain what the ark is just in case um, there's a couple of arks in the bible they didn't drag Noah's boat into the into the midst of the battle the ark was where the ten commandments were inside the ark and uh, some other things from Israel's Israel's history and there was um, cherubim golden cherubim at either side um, and it was a holy it was it was where the presence of God was focused amongst God's people and it lived in a very sacred and holy place and uh, only the high priest could even approach the ark of God and, um, and it was, gave the, the people of God the assurance God is with us. They just had to look at the tabernacle or later on in the temple and say we know God is with us, the ark is in there. Um, but the ark had been captured, the ark had been captured. God was no longer with them. That's how they would have understood it. And when Eli heard this, he fell off his chair and he broke his neck and he died. And the scripture says that he was old and he was very heavy. It's interesting, isn't it? These details that the scripture includes. Why is he heavy? I think he's been sitting around the table with his sons. Remember the Bible said he didn't, God was upset with Eli because he didn't restrain his sons. So here they are eating this beautiful fatty meat. Where these comes from, boys? Oh, don't tell me, don't tell me. Gee, it tastes good, but don't tell me where it comes from. And he was heavy. So he was involved in the sin of Israel too. And Phineas, who had died by this point, his wife was pregnant. And when she heard that her husband had been killed and her father-in-law was now dead... And the ark had been captured. She suddenly went into labour and she gave birth. And the person looking after her said, you've got a son. And she said, call him Ichabod because the glory of God has left Israel. And then she died. It's a pretty grim story, isn't it? It's a very sobering story. So let's take note of this warning. Let us not just think that because we're singing songs and believing that God is with us whilst living in disobedience because that is presumption and it will not end well. So what happens is the ark is amongst the Philistines. Now the Philistines weren't as smart as they thought they were because they were in trouble. 
they put the ark of God in the temple of Dagon. And Dagon is this little statue propped up there in his temple. And they, put, they thought very highly of themselves and very highly of their God, the Philistines, when they put the ark in there because they would have thought, well, maybe Israel's God isn't so big after all. Maybe our God is bigger than your God. We'll just pop him in here and see how that goes. The next morning they come in there and here's Dagon on his face before the ark of God. And that was a bit embarrassing. So they popped Dagon back up again. Steady on there, Dagon. Stay up there. The next morning they came in. Dagon's still up there, but his hands and his head are not. They're sitting on the entryway of the temple. That's why after that, the Philistines who... Uh, entered the temple of Dagon, they actually step over the threshold because they don't want to step on the place where holy Dagon has been. And, um, and so they're starting to get worried. What have we got ourselves into? And tumours are breaking out on people in the city of Ashdod. And so they have a meeting and they say, we can't have this ark. We can't have this here. Israel's God, his hand is heavy upon us. So they move him on to the next town, to Gath. Remember, Philistine comes from Gath. We'll get to him in a couple of weeks. Same thing happens. People start to suffer. Tumours are breaking out. God's hand is heavy, oppressing the people of Gath. So they move the ark of God onto another city. And the city, the city of Ekron sees the ark of God coming and they say, no, 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 no. And a great panic breaks out in that city and there's death and there's tumours and they can't handle God. And so they do something very smart. They grab their priests and the um, diviners and they say, how do we get rid of this thing in a way that we don't all die? And it turns out that the Philistine priests and diviners have more insight than the priests of God's people, the Israelites, because they do two things. They say, you've got to deal with your guilt and you've got to deal with your heart. They say, please, remember Egypt, what happened to the Egyptians and Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart against this God. It did not go well with him. Don't harden your heart against God. Secondly, you've got to put some offerings, you've got to give some offerings to God to atone for your guilt. So they made some golden mice and some golden tumours. You know what that would look like? And they put them in a box next to the ark in a new cart and they put some milk cows in front of the, uh, the cart that had never been yoked up before. And they took the milk cows' calves away from them and locked them up at home And they said, okay, let's send this cart on its way to the land of Israel. If these cows go directly to the land of Israel, then we know it was God who has been making us suffer and and, um, and hopefully everything will be okay because we've we've recognised that by saying, God, these tumours and these plagues of mice that are ruining us, the land and the people and uh, all that you've done to our idols, it's from you, God. We're giving you the glory for that. But if the cows don't go straight up there and they turn around and come home, then we'll know that it is all just some coincidence. So they sent the cows on their way 
And the cows are lowing, they're, they're crying out for their babies, but they don't turn around. They go straight to the land of Israel. And so the Philistines, even though Israel was supposed to be the ones to show the Philistines how great God is, God himself has shown the Philistines how great he is. And this is the heart of God. That God wants all peoples across the earth to know his name, to know his greatness. And God's getting the job himself. You might hear stories of how God is revealing uh, the name of Christ to people in dreams who otherwise wouldn't listen to a a Christian speak his name. God is making himself known. So the cart with the ark arrives in Israel and the people of the town shout out, hooray, the ark's come back. Does that sound familiar? Hooray, we've got God back. (laughs) Steady on, careful. Let's not go back into the land of presumption. They start well. They get the Levites to carry the ark. They chop up the cart. They chop up the poor cows. They make a sacrifice. And they, they set um, the ark on a stone. But some people decide they want to have a look inside this interesting piece of holy furniture. And God slaughters 70 people in that town. And so they're back to where they were. What is going on here? The ark is back in Israel because the Philistines couldn't handle the presence of God. But now that it's back in Israel, Israel can't handle the presence of God. And so they send a message to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, the next the town further down. They say, oh, guess what? The ark's come back. Do you guys want it? <laughs> and so they come and get the ark and they uh, consecrate someone to be the priest to look after the ark. And the ark just stays there. It stays there for 20 years. And the scripture says... Um, The NIV says that the people return to the Lord, but if you read a more literal translation like the NRSV or the ESV, it says this in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2, A long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, this is a good thing. This is progress. They've gone from from living in disobedience and presuming God's blessing to now understanding that God is a holy God. He is, a, he is the all-powerful God and he is a holy God and they are weak and they are sinful and the two are just not going together. There is an incompatibility here we don't know what to do with. There's lamenting. We can't handle God. We long for God. We want to be close to God, but we cannot be with God. This is the place that everyone needs to come to in order to become a Christian. To recognise the holiness of God and the sinfulness of my own heart and the two just cannot go together. It's not where God wants you to stay but it's a necessary place to go through. Peter experienced this. When Jesus came 
And he took Peter fishing and Peter got this great load of fish. He'd been fishing all night. He hadn't caught anything. And, um, and he catches this great load of fish and Jesus is in there with the boat and he looks at Jesus and it starts to dawn upon him the holiness of this man. Who is this man? And he says, go away. Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. My um, daughter was down the street recently and there was a Muslim evangelist. I can't say evangelist because evangelist means to take the good news. A, a Muslim proselytizer might be a, a better way of saying it, who was trying to persuade people to become Muslims in Wagahir. And um, he didn't persuade her to become a Muslim, you'll be happy to know. But she, he gave her some pamphlets and she brought them home. And as I was reading them, I was upset at first. I thought, you know, don't talk to my daughter, please. Um, but she, could, she stood on her own feet. She was all right. And um, I started to read these pamphlets. And the Muslim view of Jesus is that what we teach about Jesus is heresy. Because God is a holy God and we are weak and sinful people and we cannot be together. We just can't. It's incompatible. And this is what Peter realised. He's saying, I just cannot be in the same boat with you. You have to go away from me. But thank God that this is not how things have to stay. There, are good, there is good news for Muslim people. Yes, God is holy. No, yes, we are sinful. But God has made the way that sinful people and a holy God can be close to one another. And we see this in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Israelites were longing for God and Samuel knows what to do about this. And Samuel does actually what the Philistine priests knew to do. And he does also what we have to do as well. Are you ready to know what to do about this great dilemma? Holy God, unworthy Dale Skews. I'm going to read it to you. 1 Samuel, starting from verse 3, this is what Wilma read for us. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods, and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. So there are two things that have to happen. First of all, something has to happen in your and my heart. We have to be willing to let go of sin. We cannot hold on to greed to idol worship, which means putting anything beside or above God in our lives, in our hearts. God must be first, above all else. Get rid of your idols, get rid of your greed, get rid of your immorality. You cannot hold on to those and come near to God. And devote yourself and serve him only. This is why sometimes when Christians talk to each other and they want to know when someone became a Christian, they might say, I made a commitment 
in such and such a year. You ever heard that language? Because this is what is a necessary part of becoming a Christian. I have been living for myself, or I've been living for my pleasures, or I've been living for this, for that. I've come to the place where I recognise now I'm going to live for Jesus. He's my number one. And I'm letting go of sin. And Samuel does something else as well. In verse 9 it says, Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf and the Lord answered him. When Peter said to Jesus, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Jesus said to him, don't be afraid. How could Jesus say to him, don't be afraid? Don't be afraid of your sinfulness before me. Because Jesus came not only to be a wonderful teacher for us to follow, but he came to be the lamb that was sacrificed on our behalf. And so when I think about all my guilt and all of my shame and all my unworthiness and all the reasons why God could not be close to me, now I think of the Lord Jesus Christ, nailed as a criminal upon a cross, sacrificed, just like Samuel sacrificed a lamb, which never could take away the sins of Israel. Even that had to be through Jesus, ultimately. But now we know. I can be close to Jesus. I can be close to God because of Jesus. And that's why when Paul says to them, if you are like this and like this and like this, if you are living like this, greed, immorality, idolatry, you cannot presume God's blessing. You are not part of his kingdom. But he goes on to say in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6, some of you were like that. Some of you were like that. I think this has something to say to us as a church, that I think there ought to be people... It's nice that there are people like me in the church who have grown up in the church... But the early church, boy, it had all sorts of people in it. People who came out of a homosexual lifestyle. People who came out of a life of theft. People who came out of a life of complete ignorance of God, worshipping idols, coming into the... And all of them gathered together. Isn't this how it should be? Some of you were like that, Paul says. But you have been purified from sin. You have been dedicated to God. You have been put right with God by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is for for us to take hold of today. Let's pray. Father, you are a holy God. You are... You are light and in him and in you there is no darkness at all. I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would not be among those <clears throat> who put our trust in religion, but who turn from sin and put our trust in Jesus. That we could be among those who shout confidence, not presumptuously, but truly.
humbly because of you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.